Welcome to Thomson Reuters Down the Hall with Practical Law, the show that provides practical insights and expert know-how on trending legal issues. No legalese, just expertise. With your host, Renee Karibi-White. Hello and welcome to Thomson Reuters Down the Hall with Practical Law, the show that provides practical legal know-how that makes lawyers' lives easier. I'm your host, Renee Karibi-White, and today's guest is Kate Bally, Director of the Practical Law Labor and Employment Service. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much, Renee. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, we're going to talk about hot topics in employee handbooks, but first I want to hear a little bit about your background. How did you end up at Practical Law? Yes, thanks for asking, Renee. I started my legal practice as a clerk at the federal district level in Connecticut and went from there to a firm called Day Pitney and from there to a firm called Littler Mendelssohn, which is a very large employment law boutique. Sort of a misnomer to call it a boutique. It's so big. but uh, And then from there, joined Practical Law in 2009 and have really enjoyed being here. It's great to be part of this company. And what does your group do at Practical Law? We write about labor and employment law for labor and employment lawyers and in-house counsel and other attorneys that want to get up to speed on labor and employment issues. What are some of the topics that you specialize in that you have a lot of coverage on? You know, in the area of labor and employment, some of our biggest topics are wage and hour, discrimination. We have specialists in immigration, traditional labor, uh, but we cover really the gamut of all labor and employment issues. Now, I know that a lot of the labor and employment issues end up getting very, very heavily litigated, particularly in the corporate context. And to avoid that, most companies have policies in place, at least companies of any size. Typically, those policies are encapsulated in a handbook. But what about companies that don't have a handbook? Is there really any danger to not having a handbook? Good question. Yes, absolutely. Particularly in the area of discrimination and wage and hour, it's very easy to find yourself on the hook for claims um, and for your employees to come along and say, I didn't know the rules. I didn't understand my obligations. And for you to say, look, here are my expectations of you as an employee of this company is a really useful tool in everyday management of the workforce, but also if you need to present a legal defense to say, look, you were on notice of the rules, you were on notice of the law as it applies to you. So it's very important. So are there different industries where it's even more important to have those rules in place and have that formal handbook? Generally, without regard to industry, you're on the hook for all kinds of litigation issues. So it's important across industries. I would say that specifically for industries where you're working in machinery or more dangerous environments, health and safety policies are more important. Mm -hmm. But by and large, with respect to things like discrimination, harassment, retaliation, those policies are uniformly important. And do the rules that are included in the handbook policy change considerably? You mentioned manufacturing, it sounded like. So if there's a lot of OSHA considerations, would you have a bigger OSHA section, for example? I would say that uniformity across your company is ideal if you can do that. But of course, you have to be aware of the practical situation. You may have employees who need to adhere to different rules. But for um, the benefit of consistency across the company and keeping morale up, you don't want people to get the sense that some are treated better than others. That can actually pose a litigation risk in some instances. So uniformity is best if you can do that. Are there types of employee challenges that will not be prevented, even if you have the best possible handbook? Oh, certainly. Handbooks can only take you so far, but they can certainly help you, especially in defense of things like harassment claims. Um, That's the kind of thing where really a handbook can come in handy. Mm -hmm. For the companies that 
do have a handbook, is there ever any danger to actually having one? Like, is there any benefit at all to not having one and not formalizing those policies? There definitely can be. One of the biggest dangers is not following your own policies and procedures. There's nothing more appealing to a skeptical jury than an employer who didn't follow their own policies. In addition, if you are overreaching and you're really disobeying the law in your policies, for example, you've got it wrong on whether unused leave can be carried over year over year, that can really get you in trouble as well. So it sounds like it's really important to not only have policies, but get them right and then apply them consistently. That's exactly right. Yes. Okay. So for companies that have offices around the country, for example, a large retail organization or a large manufacturer or corporate conglomerates, how do they manage the different rules and requirements across various states? It can be a real challenge. State and local law varies dramatically across jurisdictions. Things like paid leave law, which are new to the legal scene, can really vary dramatically, and getting that right can be quite a challenge for employers. Tools like practical law and others can really help with that kind of thing. Now, some people might think that it would be easy to just kind of take the lowest standard. Is that actually feasible to do? I think that would be quite challenging, especially when you've got California in the mix, and California requires so much of employers. Certainly that's an option, a conservative option, but I think that might be difficult to manage for some employers. And it may enhance or affect their profitability and other considerations, it sounds like, as well. That's true. Okay. Now, the labor and employment field is extremely active, generally, and there are a lot of burgeoning issues. Can you talk about some of those issues and how they affect employment policies? Sure. The five big ones that come to mind for me are LGBT issues, accommodation, wage and hour, confidentiality, and state nuances. So for LGBT, for example, we hear about schools protesting because certain people want to use certain bathrooms and some retail establishments having multiple bathrooms and it causing a big political scene. How does that impact the corporate world? Yeah, great question. Uh, There's definitely been some backlash with respect to these issues. For example, in Oxford, Alabama, there is a new law restricting bathroom access to only folks within their biological gender. And I think we're going to see a lot more legislation and litigation over that issue. How can that actually be enforced? I mean, you may not know that yet, but are they going to do under the dress checks? Or I mean, how how are they actually able to enforce that? Well, that is a good question, and I think we're far too early in the process to know the answer. Mm -hmm. So an accommodation, what's going on with that? Yeah, so accommodation really can be broken down into a couple of subsets. Uh, We're talking about religion, disability, and also pregnancy. There are a lot of cases now that are uh, important for employers to understand as they evaluate their accommodation obligations. With respect to religion, the Abercrombie case, which is a relatively recent development, reminds employers to be sensitive about dress code requirements when they involve religious issues. The Young versus UPS case reminds employers about accommodation issues on pregnancy. It's an important case, and uh, we have some great materials on it. With respect to disability, one of the bigger ones is medical marijuana. I'm sure you've seen in the news medical marijuana is making headlines. Uh, And not only that, recreational as well. Right now, um, Colorado, Alaska, Oregon, and Washington allow for recreational marijuana. So employers are certainly fretting over the implications of that. There was a decision out of Colorado called Coates, which was an employer-friendly decision ultimately, but it's a reminder that we need to be aware of medical marijuana in the workplace, and I think that's not the last case we'll see on that issue. 
So do you foresee a scene where next to the lactation room, we have a toke room or <laughs> something of that nature down the road? Well, given the Coates decision really came out in favor of the employer, I think that is far uh, away from where we are now, <laughs> but it's hard to say. Uh, down the line, maybe so. So did that decision not require employers to allow it on the grounds? And I'm thinking here of certain employers are allowed to ban guns, for example, on their sure. work site. So I'm thinking of it in that context. Did it relate to that at all? I think there's a, a real fear among employers that they're going to have to accommodate people walking around high in the workplace, you know, operating machinery and advising people and providing therapy and all kinds of situations in which clarity of mind is vital. So this was a little bit of a comfort for employers. And again, this is just in Colorado, but it seemed to set the tone for the fact that employers are not going to be required necessarily to put up with people who are under the influence on the job. And that, that was some comfort. I imagine they would always have to be able to perform the essential job functions. That's right. Absolutely. Okay. And of course, marijuana is still unlawful under federal law. And that has to be taken into consideration. Now, where we're going with that is another question. So that sounds like another layer of challenge in terms of drafting handbooks, where the state law conflicts with the federal law. How can companies address that? It's a difficult tightrope to walk. I think there has to be some flexibility because you're mostly talking about multi-state employers or you're often talking about multi-state employers and the law varies. So I think it's a challenge to uh, work through that. And often employers choose to tackle sort of accommodation requests on an individual basis and work through that with their employees. They certainly don't want to encourage drug use generally. <laughs> I would say that's a general rule. But um, you do need to have what's called the interactive process with your employees with respect to their medical conditions, which is to say a back and forth dialogue. How can we make this work for you in a way that's not unduly burdensome for us as the employer? So wage and hour has been a major issue for at least the past 10 years. And I would think by now that people would understand what the requirements are but it still seems to come up time and time again. There's still a ton of litigation on it. There still seems to be a lot of confusion from companies on it. Why? Yeah, great question. The area of wage and hour has changed, though. Uh, as of May 2016, there were new rules issued by the Department of Labor, and they go into effect in December, and they double from 4.55 to 9.13 per week, the minimum salary required for exemption for executives, administrative, and professional employees. And that's meant quite a few changes in the workplace. So is it that the law keeps changing and that's why it continues to be an issue? That's right. Yes, indeed. Are there differences there between federal and state as well? Oh, that's an important question. Yes, there are important distinctions and it's vital for employees to get, excuse me, employers to get right wage and hour obligations at the state level because those vary dramatically and can be much more onerous above and beyond the federal requirements. Now, another area you talked about was the Defend Trade Secrets Act. Yes, with respect to confidentiality, this is another new development. So can you tell us a little bit more about what that means for employers and, in fact, the handbooks as well? Yeah, so the Defend Trade Secrets Act has created a new civil remedy for employers who are interested in preserving their trade secrets and their rights with respect to those issues. It really does mean that employers should review their policies and handbooks, make sure that the confidentiality provisions are sound and in compliance with the DTSA. Um, they also need to have new notice requirements, and those need to be incorporated into confidentiality agreements and policies as well. Now, social media comes up often as an area of risk. Has it actually turned out to be a significant risk for most organizations? 
We are seeing more and more litigation with respect to social media issues. And in particular, the NLRB has been cracking down on companies getting it wrong and in their policies. That's right. And unduly mm-hmm. restricting employee activity with respect to social media. And that's an issue that employers need to understand. Not only unionized employers, but really all employers. Now, there may be some people who created a policy five years ago and haven't looked at it since. Is it important for them to revise it and revisit it on a regular basis? Absolutely. We recommend generally that employers revisit policies at least annually and have employees sign again and acknowledge that they've received those updates because the law does change regularly. With respect to social media, that area of the law has changed dramatically. There are new decisions out of the NLRB regularly. So that one in particular is important and uh, it's easy to get your social media policy wrong. Now, I think we've just scratched the surface in terms of employee policies, but we've talked about a lot and we've covered a lot of ground. It sounds to me like these employee handbooks will be very large (laughs) and difficult to get through for the average employee. How often do employees actually read the handbooks and how do employers make sure that what they have taken the time to create in a handbook actually gets read and followed? Yeah, that's a good question. It's hard to say exactly how often employees go back to handbooks. I think when issues come up surrounding leave or pay or harassment or they want to file an internal complaint, they do go back to the handbook and refer to that to understand what the employer expects and uh, policies and procedures surrounding all of those issues. But it's not uncommon for employees to skim it, sign it, be done with it. Nevertheless, that doesn't make it unimportant with respect to your legal defense, should it come to that. So there's a definite need for an acknowledgement agreement. Absolutely. And it, it seems like it plays kind of a reference document role. Yes, indeed. So if you find yourself in court over these issues, it's important to say to a plaintiff employee, look, I know that you saw the handbook and we have here proof that you have signed an acknowledgement of having reviewed it and understood it well. So if you want to come into court now and say that you didn't, we have documentary evidence that uh, we can show that that's not the case. Okay. Well, thank you, Kate, for talking about those hot topics. As we wrap up, one of the things we like to ask our guests is a question about advice. So what was the best advice you were ever given, either personally or professionally? Well, when I was at Day Pitney, my boss thanked me for something that I hadn't done. And I said, nope, I didn't do that. That, you know, thank someone else. And he said, listen, Kate, I'll tell you, you'll be thanked for a lot of things you did and thanked for a lot of things you didn't do. But a lot of times you won't be thanked for something that you did. So take it when you can get it. And I thought that was great (laughs) advice. That is great advice. So we're out of time today. But Kate, before we go, I want to make sure that people have a place they can go to get additional resources and information. Yeah, there are quite a few resources out there, to be sure. Practical Law actually has quite a few quality resources, including our Employment Handbook Toolkit, which includes practice notes, standard documents, and checklists to help you draft the ideal handbook. If our listeners have questions or want to follow up, Kate, how can they get in touch with you? They can reach me by email at kate, K-A-T-E dot Bally, B-A-L-L-Y at T-R dot com. Okay, well, thank you again, Kate Valley, Director of Practical Law, Labor, and Employment. This has been Thomson Reuters Down the Hall with Practical Law. I'm Renee Karibi-White. Until next time, thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find both Thomson Reuters Practical Law and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes.
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Thomson Reuters, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.